0: You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. We've been journeying through the book of Acts. It's the final scene of a three week long account. Not in the Bible, it all happened in basically two days. But for us, we're covering it in three different weeks. Colin started off with uh, at, at the beginning of chapter 3 where this lame man who was parked himself in front of the temple was healed by two guys named Peter and John, leaders of that early church. And then a whole bunch of stuff happened. People saw the healing. It was a miraculous healing. They were able to share the gospel in scene 2. Scene three last week we looked at. If you were not here last week, I invite you. You can go to YouTube or Spotify. All of our all of our sermons are up on those on those channels. You can see the website, hit media, and you'll see them there. Uh, scene three was, of course, that attracted so much attention, especially amongst the leadership, because now someone is doing something that they didn't give authority for it wasn't they what they weren't doing this in the name of the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin or the Roman rulers that were there they were doing this in a different name and so attracted attention they were arrested they didn't have time was arrested in the evening they didn't have time to try them and then of course scene four was the trial where again Peter and John were able to Uh, talk about uh, this one named Jesus where there's no other name that can save and that this miracle had been done in the power only by the power of Jesus and they threaten them saying okay you can't speak in his name and of course Peter and John said well we've already gotten our command from a higher authority than you and he's told us that we are to be his witnesses so we can't we can't shut up about it so you may tell us to but but we've already gotten our commands, so we can't not talk about this man, Jesus. Which brings us to our last and final scene, because they still release them, and then they head back to their church, which is really important in the church discussion. Which, by the way, I'm, I'm going to give some time. It's unorthodox in modern-day church to, uh, to kind of you be involved and to you pray but at the end of this sermon, which I do promise this one will be shorter, <laughs> I do promise that, where I want to give you some time at the end to pray for a church, the future of our church, and how do we work and, and, and live in this world where there will be threats, there will be opposition. And that's kind of the sense of this final scene in this account. Now, how do we respond to threats or opposition that may come against us? Not just as a church, but you can think of your family, you can think of at your workplace, the temptations or the oppositions that may happen that, that, that go uh, against your faith or against what God may, may want for your life. That's why we've called this series Hidden Intersection. It's because as we walk alongside each other as a church in this direction following Jesus, we have to understand that not everyone is on that same road that we walk. And if we're not aware that there are going to be cars coming this way and this way, like a hidden intersection, you just have to be aware that's going to happen. Like that happens in normal life. And in fact, it's not usually like uh, heading out to... What's the small town, Serena? Where do you live? Saint George. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Saint George, which is a great place. I just forgot its name. Uh, it's not. We're not talking about Saint George, where you got like a four-way stop. Do you got any lights in Saint George? You got one light, right? We're not talking about that. We're talking about usually. When, we, when, when, when the Christian way of life intersects with especially in our modern day where there's so many intersections and we live in a pluralistic culture where there's really not a majority view of things it's more like the Delta in Cambridge where it's every, every time you head there especially at a bad time of day just cars flying you don't even know which lane to choose or one of those roundabouts that came in people still don't know how to Approach a roundabout. I see accidents all the time on roundabouts. It's kind of scary, actually. Try to walk your bike across a roundabout. That is a scary endeavor because no one is watching for you. They're just flying in. More often than not in this life, you'll find yourself approaching the Delta. And people have very vastly different worldviews. I mean, you, you all know this. In your workplaces... You, you, don't, you're not, you guys aren't pastors. You don't get to sit in an office and read commentaries. And when people usually come in to see me, they, they're part of the church, and so there's an understanding of the direction of life. But you know what it's like. Those of you who work, maybe you're a teacher in a school or you have an office, an office. There are so many different worldviews and people are heading in so many different directions. It's confusing, isn't it? And sometimes there is threats and opposition that will happen. Thankfully, in the book of acts it, it bears witness to that that this is very similar to the the modern predicament that we find ourselves in and honestly with all that's going on in the last 2 years especially what you find is when people feel threatened what i've found is that they handle it well and graciously and is that true people handle it well and with patience and with graciousness and they're careful of what they say and you never see any arguments on social media. Everyone just gets along. Right? That's what it looks like, right? Nah. When people feel threatened, what happens? Oh, they panic. We panic, don't we? We get, we get enraged. It's like the kids. They watch a show called Lion Guard and they sing a song called Panic and Run. So the zebras or the wildebeest, whenever they see a threat, they just all start running in the same... They all just start running like crazy. And in some sense, there's a lot of truth to that when we experience a threat like a herd of wildebeest. There's no concern or awareness for who's going to get trampled in the process because we're panicking and running. Just a wild and angry mob or a wild and angry group of wildebeest. I'm not going to take the illustration too far. However, they did kill Mufasa. (laughs) That was a joke, that was just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I still feel it, though. I still feel it. You know, when we take people out and trample on people because we're, we're angry and we're, 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 we feel threatened, we're scared, it almost feels justified. It's like we hurt someone with their words, and it's like, well, I was, I was threatened. You made me do it. Right, we've seen leaders do the same thing. We feel justified in doing so. Whoever's hurt is just an unfortunate outcome of a necessary response. Yeah, we do that in families, don't we? Like when there's, when, there's, when there's friction or a threat in the family, we start to say things to one another, and you're like, well, you, you, it's just it's an unfortunate outcome that you were hurt by my words, because I had to respond. Yeah, we do that with friends. We might do that at work. It, we, we, do, we, we can often do that as a church, how our church responds to our world. And it's not easy. Planting a church in this day and age is not easy. Like long gone are the days when you could just start a church and it was respected and there was interest just because it was a church. For one, no one cares that you started a church. No, no one cares. I learned that really quickly. Nobody really cares that you started a church. And there's almost um, not a respect, but the opposite. There's a threat in our world when, when people hear of a church being started in their neighborhood. It's not welcomed by a lot of people. Acts bears the same resemblance, though. And when something happened then people hear about a movement of Jesus, it wasn't respected, it was treated as a threat. There was a lot of similarities. This Jesus movement was unknown and not respected. So, in this final scene, how do we respond to the threat or an opposition that we may face, that we will face going through, through life. So let me read this passage. Scene five. Found in verse 23 of chapter four. Final scene. So they're released. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel the people of God themselves to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now Lord look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now that's a hard prayer. While you stretch your hand out to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You know, what I love about this passage. First thing that Peter and John do, they go back to their friends. I mean the, the, the assumption is that's their church but it's described as their friends or their companions not the person that they sit and pew beside not the person that they just go to Bible study with but their friends, the people that they walk through life with, they go back to their friends, even Peter and John, these men who are described as bold th- we've be really careful when we talk about boldness and, and I'm going to focus on boldness and I'm going to kind of walk through a little bit again I do want to give time at the end we often picture boldness, these men who are described as boldness, like 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 a William Wallace William Wallace, right? That's what it is, Braveheart, William Wallace-esque type person. Beard, wears camo, eats beef jerky. That is a bold person. And so I look at that and I'm like, I can't be that. I used to think I could be that, where you know, like you go through battle and blood's blood's all over, and you're still fighting till the last I cut my finger once and passed out, okay? (laughs) So I can't be William Wallace. I pass out from cutting my finger. You know, we sometimes think that that's what boldness is. It's the lone rangers. They don't need anyone else in the fight. They're going to go themselves, even if everyone else around them falls. We don't get that picture in here. We get people who return to their support, return to their friends, return to the people that they need to have with them in life. And there's no detail about this, but I'm assuming that they probably wept and embraced as the reality of their predicament, as I said last week, that they were close to death, just like Jesus was. We need each other in life, Christians, church. This isn't just to throw together a service. We need each other. I believe that. I need you. You need each other in this life. Here's why in this passage. I think that's so important. It's possible many would have responded in rage, right? You know, you think your friend, Peter, is thrown in prison. Some of you are going to be really mad about it. Enraged even. You're ready to knock some heads. You're ready to take to the streets, Right? Out of defense of your friend. Who's just been imprisoned wrongly. Anyone? No, you're, not, you're not, probably not going to admit it. You're ready to, you're ready to go into the streets. With rage. Ready to storm the gates. And take out your frustration on any innocent person you can find. Because their sense of injustice was triggered, obviously. But the problem was that many of them, I, I'm assuming, were enraged by it. Secondly many were probably afraid in that church. You know, if that happened to Peter and John, it could happen to anybody that chooses to speak the name of Jesus. And the threat, the arrest, solidified that the threat was real. Like, it was, it was there. Because the arrest happened, it's not just, oh, they might be against us, the culture might be against us. It was real. The threat was there. And they needed each other. This is really important because many would have been filled with rage. Many would have been afraid for their lives. I know I would have been scheming. Like, what do we do next? What statement do we put out? How do we, how do we, what what words are we going to use to speak into our world about how upset we are about this? How do we respond? I, I got a sense that there were some there in the church who were like, hold on guys. There was probably people like Colin, Cherish, who were like, hold on, Aaron. The schemers, the Aarons of the group, we're ready, to f- we're ready to like, respond. We can't wait. I bet there was some in the group that were like, guys, 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 guys. We got to pray. Just hold on here. Slow down. We got to pray. Right? Do you not think that's what's what's going on here? There were some in the church who were like, guys, slow down here. We need to pray. Yes, the threat is real. We're not minimizing the threat. But we don't know what we're doing. We gotta pray. We gotta take this to the Lord. It's a beautiful passage in, in verse 23. It says, when they were released, they came back to their friends. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God Every man, woman, child joined in a chorus of petition to God before they take their next step. I love it. And in that beautiful prayer, it demonstrates how we actually ought to respond to a threat. Now, I'm going to walk through this in a second, but I want you to direct your attention to verse 29 because that's actually what they're, that's actually what they're praying for, is verse 29. The rest of it is kind of an introduction to verse 29, which I'm going to get to in a second. It's a necessary introduction, but this is what they are praying for. Verse 29. And we're going to pray for that at the end of the service. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to consp- continue to speak your word with all boldness. Lord, make us bold. You know what they didn't ask God? They didn't ask God to remove them from their situation. They didn't ask God to change their circumstances. They didn't ask God to even keep them safe. They asked God to make them bold. Now, before I dig into that, I want to say this. Boldness does not equal brashness. Sometimes I think we think it does. Being bold does not equal slash being brash with our words. Brashness exhibits a lack of restraint a lack of wisdom that doesn't really care how the person is receiving it. All that matters is that you're saying it really loudly. Brashness tends to not challenge, it tends to hurt. It tends to not get people to consider something, it tends to just speak your mind and you deal with it how you want. That's brashness. It doesn't challenge, it hurts. Most importantly, brashness, if you look up the definition of the word, tends to draw attention to who? You. Like brashness is, I, I want to be hurt. I want my name known. That's brashness. Boldness, on the other hand, when the church prays for boldness. Boldness takes care in what is said, yet still says what is true and good. And it doesn't draw attention to the speaker. Who does it draw attention to? Jesus or the point you're trying to make? It draws people to consider what is good for them, even if they don't realize it yet. It draws attention what is good for the hero. Now, for for the hero, I think we've got a lot of heroes of faith that we can name because, yes, they were bold, but at the other hand, they probably struggled with being brash as well. And we know them because they spoke loudly. Probably the boldest ones, though, we don't even know their names throughout history. We don't know them. Because they drew attention to someone more than themselves. Now, I'm not... I'm not accusing people that we know of for like you know the those that we know of throughout church history we know their names and we know they were bold I'm not accusing them however the reality is the boldest ones we probably have no idea what they were called because they didn't bring attention to themselves. We have to be careful, guys, that our boldness isn't about having a certain volume, cranking it up to 11. Now I'm being bold with my words, or just having a brash personality. This is why it's important. You know the real secret sauce of boldness? It's not having a loud voice, it's not having a brash personality. The secret sauce of boldness is a firm grounding in who is actually in control. Look at the beautiful introduction to this prayer that before they pray for boldness, they address God as this, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the secret sauce of boldness, those of you who might be quiet or introverted, You can still be bold. You don't have to be loud. You don't have to be like a political commentary that you see on the news. And that's what being bold is. The secret sauce of boldness is having a firm grounding in who is actually in control. They address God right before, as they they experience this threat, first thing they do collectively as a group is they address the one and remind themselves in that address who is actually in control. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That term sovereign Lord indicates the hierarchy of power that truly exists in this world. It comes from a term called a despot which you've probably heard that before, that means to have absolute power, and usually it's used negatively, but now they're flipping it to say that God is the absolute authority even over the tyrant that has arrested our beloved. When we face threats of all kinds, brothers and sisters, we have this amazing privilege of reminding ourselves and addressing God whenever we so choose. This God who is our sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and everything in them, it right frames the threat that's coming that the one who's actually in control is not them. They don't have a say, God does. And the rest of the prayer continues along this thread That is, that there's nothing out of the control and authority of this God. The quote is from Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage, the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers and the rulers who were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed they remind themselves that God, through the Holy, in the power of the Holy Spirit, through their servant David, spoke hundreds of years before that this would happen. you think this is a shock to God that you're being threatened? Hundreds of years in the past, God predict like this is going not just predicts, but says this is going to happen. The Gentiles, the nations, as it says in Psalm two, they're going to rage. And the meaning of that rage is like an like untrained snorting of horses. That's what it literally means. I'm kind of scared of horses. I've never read, rid a ho- ridden a horse before. Emma, who's not here today, she's, she rides horses. And horses are scary because they can be unpredictable. That's kind of the sense from Psalm 2. It's the, there's an unpredictability. The raging of the nations. You think God is shocked by that? Hundreds of years before God says, this is going to happen. There would be threats against God's anointed Jesus. This didn't surprise God. And it's fulfilled as it says, we're truly in the city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, even the people of God called Israel. It was fulfilled in the jealousy of Herod, the cowardice of Pilate, the ignorance of Gentiles, and the hatred of the Jews. Nothing was shocking to God, though. None of it. The unpredictability of the nations, the scariness that we can see from the nations or from leaders that are in power, it also is paired with the Gentiles raging, but the peoples, they plot in vain basically what is being said. They're praying, it's like, Yes, it's scary, but to think that they can change the plans and oracles and will of God is a foolish endeavor. You can't mess with the plans of God. He is the one who is in control, it's in vain. You know, sometimes I think we're tempted to think like we're losing the culture. God isn't losing, He won't lose. that you think we need to win this one for Christianity. God is in control, guys. God's not like, oh shoot, what have you guys done? You really messed this up? God is in control in our world. Amen? That's what they're praying and reminding themselves. Guys, God is in control. The threat is real, Yes. But you have to realign the reality of what's going on here. Because it goes even further in verse 28. Not only does he say God's in contr- like God is in control, that's what they're addressing him as, but it says here's, here's the threat, and then in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Not only did this not shock God... But God also uses the worst acts and intentions in the heart of people to bring about His good in the world. That's why with God, no matter what's going on in the world, our endeavors are always successful as long as they are in God. The arrest of two men brings about salvation to 5,000 people. In this passage... And the darkest day in human history where where mankind on this world kills God the Son. But the, the reality of that evil, of that threat, was that it opened up new life for us still today. God has not been dethroned. He is in control. And bringing good from even the darkest threats. So you who are going through various threats, take heart. The sovereign Lord remains. He is not losing. And that's one huge point of the book of Acts. Over and over and over again, you're going to see threats come every single chapter. And basically, the the message is the same. God is still going to win. Nothing can change that. Here's why I think we have to remind ourselves to be firm on this conviction. This is really important. Why boldness begins with a firm conviction that God is in control. Here's why. See what it, you know what it says right before they ask for boldness? In verse 29. They just say simply this. And now Lord, they've just addressed, God you're in control, we believe that. Sometimes we don't believe it, sometimes we need to remind ourselves, but God, you're in control. Verse 29 says this, and now Lord, look upon their threats. Look upon their threats, and then it says, grant to your servants to speak with boldness. But before we are bold, they say, Lord, look upon the threat. Why would they do that? Why would they say that? a necessary step but why? I love that they don't ask even God to really do anything like they're not they're not asserting and saying God do this to those people who are threatening me like they're not asking for blood they're not asking God give them what they deserve <laughs> I think sometimes we ask God to give them to us right? God, give them to us so that I can (laughs) give me an opportunity to show them what's what. Who's really right? Kind of similarly to that brash guy that thinks if their presence could have changed the situation. I think I've used that before where a threat happens, you know, and you're like, if only I was there. This would never have happened. It's like, okay, right. Right. Got it. I would have made everything great. they just ask God to look at it. Here's why. Here's why I think it's really important. I believe it's an active statement that what they're doing is giving this threat to God. We're not going to take vengeance. We're not going to respond in rage. We're not going to take justice into our own hands. God, it's yours. You look at it. We're giving it to the Lord. This is in your hands. See, when we feel threatened, when we feel wronged, what do we typically do? We stew in it. It dominates our minds. Right? It consumes us when we feel threatened. It consumes us. We stew in it. We search articles to read about the problem. And then social media sends us more articles because we've searched that article. And we stew in it and it dominates and fills our minds so now we feel more threatened than we did before. We talk about it with our friends. We talk about it at church. You want to hear one red flag that you're not doing well? You can't help talking about the threat. It's like you're always talking about what you're threatened by. Trust me, you're not handling it well. It's dominating your mind. That's why it's so important that they begin their prayer and say, God, you look at it. It's yours. We give it to you. Because if it dominates our minds and consumes us, we're filled with rage, vengeance, and hatred. Brian, can you do me a favor? (laughs) Good thing Jared's not behind there. Can you give me my phone? There's a quote I want to read from my phone. By a woman named, and you all, I know some of you love, love this woman. Her name is Jackie Hill Perry. Awesome. She says this. I think, Sam, you posted this. So there is some good to social media, even though I hate on social media sometimes. Now I've got to find it. Oh, yeah, here it is. Here we go. This is what she says. There's a lot to be angry about. Injustice in various forms. The disregard of humanity, of heaven, of love, of the reigning Lord, and a truth that sets us free. At the point that perpetual rage describes you, or us, though, is when something needs to be adjusted. We need to guard what we're watching, what we're listening. Having continual conversations around Are they stirring us up to love and good works, or just more rage? Just anger? Just clenched fists and unrestrained anxiety? Truth is, most of us are scared. But instead of going to our Lord with our angst, we huff and puff and tear everything down as a way to reform our environment as if verbal violence is the way to bring heaven to earth. That may be the spirit of the age but it definitely ain't the spirit of the living God. See, when we do this doesn't mean it's less important that the threat isn't real but it reframes our thinking to reflect what we believe is true. When we give this over to our sovereign Lord it releases us from rage it releases us from vengeance cuz this kind of boldness is not filled with rage i'm going to close with this look what it says in verse 30 i love i love the end of this prayer they ask for two things lord look upon their threats firstly we're giving them to you secondly fill us with boldness thirdly while you stretch out your hand to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then the place is shaken with the power, and I believe, the pleasure of God. While you stretch out your hand to heal. Is that a prayer full of rage? Unrestrained anxiety? No, it's a prayer full of forgiveness. God, make us bold. Because this message is for our good. For this world's good. And for your glory. You know what I think the boldest statement ever made was? It wasn't from William Wallace. Nor Maximus from my favorite movie, Gladiator. It wasn't a hot take online. It wasn't an unrestrained quote trying to start an argument. You know what the boldest statement ever was? in the face of incredible threat to the very end to take a man's life a man man chooses not to respond in rage not to respond in vengeance but to give it over to his father a man chooses to pray in the face of incredible threats to the one who's actually in control to the one who knows that if if he wants to save me he will He doesn't ask for blood. He doesn't ask to remove himself from the situation. But he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's bold.